The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We are in uh, Deuteronomy 24 this morning. Deuteronomy 24. I sort of accidentally omitted the uh, reading last Sunday morning. The reason was that it was moved in its placement to later in the service for its particular content was more appropriate for that time in the service. And uh, I got up and I started preaching and that was it. That was, uh, I forgot myself. So <laughs> anyway, we read uh, 23 last Sunday evening to uh, make up for that. So we're in Deuteronomy 24. And it says this, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce again a second time and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as a wife, his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, there's a lot more that can be said there in that passage. I will just remind you that our Lord reminded us that God through Moses permitted divorce because of what reason? Because of the hardness of their hearts. Okay, so don't think that this is some great uh, approving passage or uh, whatever you want to call it of, of divorce. It is certainly not that. Verse 5, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge for he takes one's living in pledge. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brothers of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. I take that passage very seriously. We've talked about that before with man stealing or kidnapping and uh, its relation to slavery of old in our land. Verse 8, Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall tell you. Just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. When you, that's interesting too, isn't it? An outbreak. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. Verse 10, When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. So there's an integrity of personal dwelling place here. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God." You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. 
Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Okay, so for a day laborer who relied on the day's wages to live and provide food for his family, it was necessary that he be paid at the end of his workday so he could do that. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Amen. There are a lot of things that can concern your soul these days. I just want to share with you one of them. Just kind of nothing to do with the message this morning. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 if you want to turn your Bibles there. Actually, we'll start in Matthew chapter 17 if you want to jump over there as well. Um, I was sent uh, on this other subject matter, uh, I sent an article, a couple, links to a couple of uh, articles from a trusted pastor friend in Ohio, and uh, it addressed a topic that I've been wondering about for a long time, and it has to do with this whole matter of uh, actually only part of what's going on in our society today, and I thought it would be helpful to inform you a little bit about it, just so you're aware of some of the stakes that uh, are before us. When we talk about the idea of fascism and anti-fascism, okay, and I've often wondered what do those terms mean exactly. And so these articles were kind of helpful to express something that I had thought, but I hadn't just by reading and understanding what's going on, but wasn't able to put words to very well. And uh, I'll touch on a couple of secondary sources, but then one primary source, just for a couple of moments this morning, just to let you know what uh, kind of what we're up against. More than seven decades ago, the British writer George Orwell observed that the term fascism had lost any coherent meaning. The word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not Desirable. He wrote in his essay, Politics and the English Language. And um, many historians and and writers, the article goes on to say, have described it as a right-wing movement, fascism. And the claim has an element of truth to it because when Mussolini and his syndicalist friends created the uh, fascist party, It's true that they embraced Italian nationalism. Yet the party also called for, listen, the seizure of church lands. 
confiscation of finance capital and the abolition of the Italian monarchy and Senate. In fact, Mussolini was an ardent Marxist for years, the son of a socialist anarchist craftsman. He was well-versed in the works of Marx, whom he praised as, quote, a magnificent philosopher of working-class violence. The use of violence to attain political goals is a stance that Antifa, which is supposed to be anti-fascist, also embraces. I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? We see that out on the streets. Uh, And this doesn't quite fit in the flow that I'd like. If I was doing a whole presentation on this, I wouldn't do it this way. But do you know the uh, author Solzhenitsyn? Famous for his work, what? Anybody know? He's a Russian author. Remember the book that he wrote? The Gulag Archipelago. Yeah, I read that a long time ago as a young man. Very eye-opening, very troubling too. He said this, Violence does not live alone and is not capable of living alone. It is necessarily interwoven with falsehood, the Russian writer observed, prior to his exile from the Soviet Union. Any man who has once acclaimed violence as his method must inexorably choose falsehood as his principle. You got that? Violence and falsehood. Intimately tied together. Now, back to this uh, definition. An article that is written on the philosopher Marcuse, M-A-R-C-U-S-E, says this, Scholars of fascism do not agree on what fascism means, noted in the Atlantic, nor for that matter do fascist scholars agree on what fascism means. It's, a, it's a kind of what I've thought. Like, I mean, if I asked you what fascism was, put it on a, you know, write it on a quiz, pop quiz for you, would you be able to answer the question? It's very confusing. At one point, however, scholars are united. A key component of fascism, one found in virtually every definition, is the idea that it involves suppression of political opposition and the use of redemptive violence against ideological rivals to expand influence and power. Since Antifa routinely uses violence and intimidation to prevent political opponents from assembling and publicly defend these tactics as a means to their ends, their fascist tendencies are self-evident. In other words, Antifa uses fascism to try to undermine fascism. That's how they say it. The intellectual basis for those who reject Antifa's fascist connection can be found in the writings of Herbert Marcuse, whose work is considered to be the root of neo-Marxist philosophy. He was a German-American philosopher, sociologist, and political theorist. While at the Institute of Social Research, let that sink in, the Institute of Social Research, better known today as the Frankfurt School, Marcuse would publish several works on Marx that would abandon the Marxist focused on labor and class struggle and developed a controversial philosophy of critical theory. Critical theory is an analysis of politics, history, art, and society through the lens of power dynamics. places the world into boxes of oppressor and oppressed. Marcuse calls for a liberating tolerance that represses the strong and empowers the weak. He explained that a liberating tolerance, quote, would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. 
Marcuse openly admits that his liberating tolerance might seem apparently undemocratic, but justifies using repression and indoctrination to advance the agenda of a subversive majority. Quote, this means that the ways should not be blocked on which a subversive majority could develop. In other words, encourage the subversive majority. And if they are blocked by organized repression and indoctrination, that would be by, the, by those in power, their reopening may require apparently undemocratic means. What does he mean by that? That means tyrannical means. That means violent means. They would include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly. Does that sound somewhat familiar? The withdrawal. This is his quote written years ago. Include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly. So what I'm doing right now is speech. And what we're doing right now is assembly. But that is something that folks in this camp that derives out of Marxism don't want us to do. So speech and assembly uh, withdrawn from groups and movements which promote aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion, or which oppose extension of public services. Moreover, it goes on, the restoration of freedom of thought may necessitate new and rigid restrictions on teachings and practices in the educational institutions, which by their very methods and concepts serve to enclose the mind within the established universe of discourse and behavior. He doesn't know how prophetically true he is about our current educational institutions, by the way. But what he's saying is that we could use those and rigidly shut down alternative viewpoints. It becomes apparent that if one is an adherent of Marcusean philosophy, then you could easily justify using fascist tactics in the name of fighting fascism itself. Now, I'll just close with this. There's a lot more here, but just kind of highlighting this and maybe you want to look into this a little more. Marcuse, Antifa, and other neo-Marxists should heed Frederick Nietzsche's words. Beware that, and this is connecting their use of violence to, to get rid of fascism. To me, they're all the same. I mean, they just kind of merge into the very same thing. But he said this, Nietzsche himself, uh, he, he was no good theologian, okay? i just put it that way. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. This uh, philosophical foundation illuminates why Antifa and others think they have license to behave violently like fascists in the name of fighting them. So that helps you to understand a little bit in, a, in the broader political scene, but also I'm specifically most interested in how it affects us as Christians. Part of their stated specific goal is to eliminate assembly and freedom of speech and religion. If you don't understand that, then I, in, I implore you to carefully read and research and think more deeply about it. When people talk about socialism and Marxism and fascism and, 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 and socialism begins to have some attractiveness to it in the, in the left-leaning mindset, that is just a stepping stone to communism and Marxism 
and the stated goals of those philosophies is to get rid of religion. That directly affects my livelihood, folks. And that's why I'm a little concerned about it. Okay, So, people running around blindly saying that, yeah, we should go that way, they've been educated very poorly as to the effects of what they're saying. So, thus my concern to share with you this morning. Let's turn our attention then to the Scriptures, which are the divinely authoritative book from God. We'll go to Matthew chapter 17. And in light of what we've said there, we probably won't have time to get through quite all of this, but we're going to make a yeoman's effort at it. So please join me there in Matthew 17, verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, Those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we begin our message in the Word, that it will be cogent and coherent to your people and that you will help us to understand and obey what is explained and applied this morning in the message. Give us uh, your Spirit to guide us in this endeavor. In Jesus' name, Amen. We carry on in verse 25. Then Peter responded. He said, yes, and, and, um, when you're, and when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to them, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea Cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now you're going to say, what is pastor going to preach on? It's not April 15th. We're not coming up to tax day here yet. What, what do we have to do with this? Well, this records an incident in which the Lord instructed Peter to pay the temple tax in order not to offend the tax collector or those who were asking the questions more particularly. What he said to Peter was that, however, although you're paying this, as sons of the great king, neither the Lord, who is the Son, nor His children, the lowercase s, sons, like Peter, neither of them were obligated to pay the tax. Because the tax was paid to upkeep the temple. Each year, the males in Israel had to pay, I think it was a two-shekel tax, uh, a couple of days' wages uh, to support the work of the temple. But that was the work of God. But God's children would not be obligated to pay that according to the logic that the Lord uses with Peter. And it's sound logic and it's inspired, of course, and it's true. But not everyone possessed that clear-headed knowledge or recognized that the Lord and His disciples were so highly placed in divine society. They had a right not to pay the tax because they were in the divine family who was the recipient of the tax. Does that make sense? You know, we think, you know, we don't think this way because we, we live in a democracy. You know, and everybody, and taxes and all of that, everybody's equal. And, and there's no ruling uh, class, so to speak, no nobility supposedly. Um, But when you're talking about a kingdom with a king, 
taxes work a little bit differently. The taxes go to what? The crown. They don't go to a treasury of, of you know, who knows, who knows who's in that building doing, handling our money back there uh, or printing more or whatever. Um, so it went to the crown. They, they avoided these, uh, these two, Jesus and Peter, the unnecessary conflict with the tax collectors by just paying it. And that's something similar to what Paul is going to teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's going to avoid certain problems or certain accusations by handling his ministry in a certain way. But I pause just for a second to think about that underlying statement in the notes. Think of Peter's position in what I call the divine society, or I could have called it the divine family. And recognize that you yourself, if you are a Christian, are similarly highly placed in divine society. And if you were here instead of Peter, the Lord would say, well, yeah, you don't owe the tax either, but just to avoid problems, let's go ahead and pay it anyway. Go, go fishing and, and grab the first fish that comes and do that. We have the great privilege to be called sons of God. To those who received Him, He gave the authority or the right to be called the children of God. And that comes with great privileges. Now, those privileges are masked today. Those privileges are hidden today. The world does not recognize those privileges now. In fact, many in the world look down upon Christians as the scum of society. But they will shortly realize that that is entirely wrong-headed to think that way. Because we will be ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Very highly placed in the divine society. Things will be turned around. But, though we have those privileges, we can't walk around and act like we have those privileges. Because, obviously, uh, the kingdom of God is not yet and we have to be patient and await its arrival. Now, we turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and look at what Paul says is going to say here, we've started this subject matter already on the ideas of liberty and and knowledge and conscience and love. And Paul's going to apply this in his particular situation, but expand upon it. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Remember that word free from before in Matthew Matthew 17. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So we begin by making an assertion this morning in our notes, and this I take is what Paul is saying, is summarized in this statement. Paul is definitely an apostle. That is what I think is the summary statement of verses 1 and 2. The opening questions in verse 1 are clearly rhetorical in nature. By means of these questions, Paul makes a number of assertions. That's often what a rhetorical question does. right? It makes an assertion of fact by means of a question. What are the assertions? Well, look at each question. Am I not an apostle? What he's saying is, I am an apostle. Am I not free? Yes, I am free in the sense that he has all the liberty that a Christian could have. Has he seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, he has. He has seen 
Christ. Remember, he saw him on the road to Damascus and a number of other times as well. And he's asked finally, number the, the fourth question, are you not my work in the Lord? Well, yes, uh, the Corinthians are a fruit of his gospel work. Now, by just pausing and, and thinking about the, the literary method that Paul uses here, think about how he uses the question. He invites the mind of the Corinthians to actively engage in thinking through what he's saying. I want you to imagine if in a sermon my practice were to randomly call on anybody in the audience to answer a question for me. Like, related to the context of what I'm preaching. What does Paul say next, Drew? What does he mean by that, Becky? Dan, what do you think about? If, if I'm asking questions of you, and you know that's coming, you are going to be probably sitting on the edge of your seat, paying attention, wondering who is he going to call on next. And so you're going to be engaged a lot better than if your head is doing one of those bobblehead things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're going to pay good attention. Would, would that help you to pay better attention in your classroom in school if you thought the, the teacher was going to ask you a question? And in fact, in verses 1 through 12, Paul uses this methodology asking 16 questions in the space of 12 verses. Amazing. If you count them, maybe you'll find the same number that I think I did. I counted three times. I got two different numbers and I took the one that I got twice. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's correct, but you check it out. 16 questions. Now, uh, the last point of verse 1, are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, aren't you my spiritual fruit? That is supported by what verse 2 says. And what he says is, look, if, if, it's an, if it's a possibility that I'm not an apostle to other people, you know, if others don't recognize him as an apostle of Christ, even if that were true, that's irrelevant to the Corinthians. Because Paul came to them, preached the gospel to them, their eyes were opened, they were saved, they were transformed. They saw that their prior way of life was wrong and they repented of it, or at least most of them did, we'll assume, uh, for sake of this argument. By, by all of this, they knew that Paul was a real minister of the Gospel. He was not just some regular itinerant preacher coming along, preaching another one of the hundreds of false deities or false philosophies that were current at the time. They had experienced a life transformation that they had never experienced before. None of those philosophers came and told them, you people are wicked sinners and unless you repent, you're going to die and be subject to eternal punishment. But there is a way of salvation. That is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he told them, 1 Corinthians 15. And if they believed that gospel and stood in that gospel, he says there in that same chapter, they would be saved. And they recognized that. They knew now that that was true. Their eyes had been opened to a reality that they had not recognized before. By the way, that's a sad truth of so many, of all who are unsaved today. They run around looking for solutions in education, in medicine, in politics, in uh, inspirational 
uh, speeches and all that. They have no idea that they're sinners and have offended a holy God and need eternal life. This is what the message was all about. Paul brought that. They became his spiritual fruit. Remember Macedonia and Achaia, that part of his missionary journey. And there they were. They knew he was the minister of the gospel. In fact, he had done miracles among them. Now, these are not recorded in Acts 18 nor in Acts 20 when he spent some time in Corinth. But he mentions it in 2 Corinthians 12.12. If you look there, you would find that Paul says, Didn't I work the signs of an apostle among you, including mighty deeds and wonders? He also, perhaps among them, spoke with tongues, which we deal with in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through So they knew that something was up with Paul. The believers themselves were the the stamp of approval or seal. Look at verse 2. I doubtless am an apostle to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Okay, if you have his apostleship certificate, the Corinthian seal is stamped onto that certificate. They are what they are because he is what he is. Another way of saying it is as he says in 2 Corinthians where he says, you are our letter. You are our epistle of commendation. You prove that my apostleship is true. If he were not an apostle and a minister of God's grace, they would not exist as a church. And so he's making the case that he his apostleship is legitimate. Now somehow, somebody had sown a seed of doubt in the church about that. They didn't like Paul's doctrine or something. Maybe it's a little too constraining, like holiness is a little bit too much. You know, we want to live a little bit. We want to have a little freedom to enjoy the pleasures of life. All of what Paul said should have settled the matter of his apostleship, but it didn't because, first of all, you had somebody sowing doubt uh, seeds in the church. Perhaps they would said his apostleship was fake. Maybe he was like every other itinerant preacher. He didn't take financial support from us, so that would doubt them to cause cause them to you know doubt his authority or authenticity. You know all the all the itinerant speakers that come around here take money from us. They're looking for a handout. And secondly, Paul explains that although he is an apostle, he's going to tell us. There's a reason why they might have doubted his apostleship, and that is because he didn't use all of the rights that he had as an apostle. He did this to gain a greater reward for his service. Now, I'm jumping ahead, but let me try to explain that just for a second. He says in verse 18, if you look down at verse 18, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel... I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Let me try to give you a little bit of an idea of what he's saying here. In, the, in, in this immediate verse, in verse 18, what he's saying to the believers is, I have presented to you the gospel free of charge and that is my extra effort to serve the Lord. Now, just his being apostle was not enough. Why? Because Jesus told him that's what you have to do. That's like, you know, 
orders from headquarters. That's the soldier obeying that he doesn't get a special reward for doing what he's told to do. He's just an unprofitable servant like the rest of us are. And he's to give the gospel. But he takes the extra step and says, okay, I'm going to give it. And beyond that, when I go to a new place, I'm going to give it and not take money from them in order to illustrate the freeness of the gospel. See, you didn't have to pay money to get saved. Thank God for that. You don't have to pay to hear the message of the gospel. There are some people, though, that that are so cynical They think when somebody invites them to church, all they're inviting is their wallet and they figure the wallet needs two legs to walk into the church so they invite the person. That's not the case. Our interest is not money. It is you, your soul. And so what he's doing is saying, I come to this place, I'm not going to muddy up the situation by asking for, demanding, which is my right, financial support. I will not. I'm going to do it free. Now, in the bigger picture, I think what Paul is doing here is very interesting. Remember what we said last week. We restrain our liberty out of love. Knowledge creates, true knowledge creates true liberty. When we know that there's only one God, then we could eat that meat sacrificed to idols. But we're not going to do certain things with that knowledge and liberty that would cause damage to our brother. So we have liberty but we're going to restrain ourselves from exercising that liberty. Remember that? Paul is going one further. This is not a matter of liberty that he's talking about. This is a matter of rights. This is what he is due. He's saying, not only am I going to restrain my liberty to expand my scope of ministry, I'm going to restrain what is my rightful due. I'm going to go one beyond that which tells us something interesting, I think, is if the Apostle Paul, as a Christian, is willing to withhold himself from that which he's due, no problem for us to withhold ourselves from some little liberty that we have, or we say we have, or we think we have, in order to expand our ministry. Paul is doing, putting both of these together to help instruct us. The mindset of the Christian... If my eating offends my brother, or if using my rights hinders the gospel in any particular context, I won't do it. I'm not going to sit here and demand my rights or my liberties in order to please myself because my goal is to please my Savior and help the people to whom I've been sent to ministry. So, very important principles that he's bringing to our attention. Here, uh, you know, everybody wants to speak about rights today, right? You know, right, freedom of speech, right to life, freedom to worship, freedom or right to bear arms, and some want to expand this into the right to health care and education and universal income and all of that sort of stuff that you hear about today. I caution us not to uh, expand our understanding of rights beyond what the Bible does. I mean, do you have a right to live in a democracy? No. You have a right to live where God's placed you. And if that's a kingdom or a dictatorship, that's where you are. And you can't say, God, I have a right to live in a democracy. Well, you well, see how that works out. <laughs> yeah, That's not promised to us in the Bible. We can be glad that we have a level of freedom that we do. So some, now verse 3, some were examining Paul as in, as in a um, kind of a, 
almost cross-examination or a pre-trial examination as to his rights and his apostleship. And he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. So we're kind of in a courtroom setting here. Uh, Not in a setting, but in a metaphor. Can I say it that way? He's writing it. Look, some people there are examining me, putting me under the cross, as it were, examination to see if if I really am the real deal and if I'm supposed to receive these rights and I'm going to defend myself. And, the, and because in defending himself, he's a, he's a specially authorized minister of the Gospel, he's going to defend the Gospel. He's going to defend his Savior as well. Now, this right that he talks about here, uh, verse 4, do we have no right to eat and drink? It's, it's, a, it's a thing that is due to someone. It's in your power to obtain it. It is something that you are obligated to receive from somebody else. For an apostle, these rights included what he talks about here. Eating and drinking and taking along a family member, especially a wife. And we assume with a wife would come the children. So what he means is that I have the right to financial support. And this is where we're now moving in the flow of the text. Paul says, I'm definitely an apostle. And as an apostle, I have certain rights. And that's where we're going to end today. Next time, he's going to say, and even though I have those rights, I'm not going to use them for particular reasons that he'll go into. One of those rights that he talks about is the right to financial support so he can eat and drink without having to work an outside job to pay for his needs. Now, working another job for a minister is sometimes necessary. It's sometimes done voluntarily, but it always comes with a downside to ministry. I can't tell you if I had to work 40 or 50 hours on a job, you know, say a secular job, what things would be left undone. It's, I mean, it would just be utterly impossible. If you believe what the Lord said, to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest, that there is always a labor shortage in Christian ministry. There has never been a time when there's been an overglut of gospel ministers where you could say, oh, that's enough. Boy, we don't need any more. Stop applying to seminary, please. No, that's never happened. There's so much work to do for the Lord. The second, that's eating and drinking. <clears throat> the second is to take along a believing wife like with the other apostles. Look at uh, verse 5. Um, as the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and he calls out Cephas or Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So the idea was that as he travels, he should be able to take along his family with him without having to uh, find other work to make resources to pay their way. For a missionary, it would be impossible to, to minister without his family at his side. Uh, when we send missionaries, we send support for the missionary in proportion to the size of their family. So, family with three kids, four kids, five kids, no kids, the, the support level in most missions changes, I think probably universally, depending on the need. And then the churches are informed as to what that need is if they inquire, and they can participate accordingly. But the, the family needs to have expenses, you know, finances for travel. Taxes, health, living, food, housing, all of the rest. All of that's included in missionary or and pastoral support. 
And these rights continue, as Paul is indicating here, these rights continue today for pastors or elders, overseers, same thing, throughout the entire church age. And for missionaries who are basically, I'll call them for now, remote pastors. That's all. I mean, most missionaries that are, at least church planting missionaries, are pastors to start a church. Now, Paul inquires whether he and Barnabas are a special case. Do we... Do we are the are we the only ones that don't have these rights? Are, are are we the only ones that have to go get a side job to support our own Christian ministry? We're 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 different than everybody else. Again, he's asking it as a question. It's almost as if with all these questions, he's saying, guys, I'm not quite understanding why you don't get this, like. Isn't it obvious to you that we have a right to eat and drink? We have a right to take along our spouse. We don't have to, we're not required by the Lord to work. And he gives them, because, because they don't believe that, he gives them four illustrations now of why it makes so much sense. In other words, he's arguing for his point that, that apostles, pastors, missionaries have this kind of right. Four compelling illustrations. Number one, a soldier. Look at verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Again, the question. Who goes to war at his own expense? Would you, if the government said, yeah, you come along, but you've got to pay your own way, get your own uniform, buy your own, in, you know, your own gun and your own bullets. Or your own shield and your own sword in that context. No, that's... That wouldn't work. That, that's, nobody thinks that's the case. You're going to war for the king. The king's got to pay the expenses. Okay? Uh, why are they not getting such an obvious issue? Or a farmer. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? A true injustice is when somebody tills the soil, plants the seed, waters, weeds, tens, prunes, and it's all taken away from him in the end. That is wickedness when that happens. The farmer's own labors and property being seized is sinful in God's eyes. Obviously, there's a space for taxation. God makes that. But the complete seizure of labor and the means of production and private property is not biblical. It is a true injustice when the farmer cannot eat of his own fruit. It's obvious when a guy plants a garden, he's going to eat his dinner from the garden. Or, illustration number three, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? So you have a shepherd who tends to goats or uh, a cow herd who is tending to cattle. He's going to partake of the fruit that is harvested from that flock. I mean, somehow or another. I mean, he might not, you know, in our day, he might not literally drink of the milk of that, you know, a cow that's milked. I mean, the milk goes into the milk machine and is pasteurized and all whatever they do with it. But he's going to get paid for the labor that he does out of the milk that is sold, so effectively he's, he's eating or drinking of the milk. Fourth illustration. 
Paul, Paul actually inter- intervenes here in verse 8. He says, do I say these things as a mere man? You know, am I giving you merely human illustrations? Or does the law not say the same thing also? Well, in fact, it does too. Turn over to Deuteronomy 25. We have been in Deuteronomy 24, which has something relevant to our message this morning. But Deuteronomy 25 also does. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, Paul uses this in a very, uh, some would say, strange manner. I think it's very straightforward when you think about it. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses. So he's appealing to this as a way to say apostles should be financially supported. It's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So he's going to now make an argument from lesser to greater to explain that if an animal can expect to receive support, a man should be able to receive support. You know, people, uh, animals aren't people. Keep that in mind, okay? Animals aren't people. Animals today have been elevated by some to the level of people. What does he say? Is it oxen God is concerned about? Again, this question is, think about it, guys. Is God concerned for oxen? Well, yes. In fact, every righteous man is concerned for the life of his animal. That's Bible. Okay, We're not callous. We don't just go shooting things for the fun of it or treating our animals abusively, that's not what a Christian does at all. So yes, God is concerned about oxen, but He's more concerned about something else. He's concerned about our sakes. Verse 10, or does He say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows, there's the farmer again, should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. You know, the guy who plows the field for his, his, his master or the guy who's hired him to plow all day expects to receive something at the end of the day. Or the guy who threshes the grain at the end of the season expects to receive something. You know, he's hoping for a payday at the end, whenever the pay period is, so that he can live. He can feed his family and, and prosper in his own home and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so the minister of the Gospel. In every case, the worker earns his living from what? His work. Whether it's digging ditches or filling spreadsheets or management, administration, or pastoring, the worker earns his living from his work. Just like a day laborer had to be paid at the end of his day. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy 24? When the guy's done, don't withhold his pay. By the time the sun's down, he should have his money in his hand so that he can feed himself and his family. So in the same way, apostles were to be supported. Ministers of the Gospel are, in fact, like soldiers. Be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. They're like farmers, 2 Timothy 2 says. Hardworking. They're like shepherds, 1 Peter 5 too. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Pastors and evangelists are like soldiers in that they're under orders from a commander. They're like farmers in that they water 
and plant and water the message of the Word. Remember what Paul said in, back in 1 Corinthians 3? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, because of this, it's very clear that Paul has the right to financial support. Now, he could volunteer to forego such compensation. And that's possible. But it may be unwise depending on the circumstances. Like, how much ministry is there that needs to be done? Is, this, is ministry really a part-time thing? Or is it a full-time thing? But to demand that ministers be unpaid runs against the clear teaching of the Bible. Be clear about that. To demand that pastors or ministers or missionaries or in this case apostles be unpaid runs against the clear teaching of the Bible. Now let's look at a couple of examples. The twelve disciples of Christ, Matthew chapter 10. They were sent out to minister the the message of the kingdom, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to tell them the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And what did the Lord tell them? Don't take extra stuff with you. But wherever you go, plant yourself there. Find a house of a peace, a peaceful home is the idea, a, a peaceful person. That's an interesting concept, by the way, that some missiologists and church planners like to think about, and I think it would be worthy for us to think more about it. Um, but when you go there, you take whatever they put before you to eat. You stay there wherever they offer you to stay. If they don't stay and let you stay, then move on, shake the dust off your feet. And so God or Jesus promised their provision for the time that they would be uh, in that uh, mission. Now, similarly, I could add to that the 70. You remember the Lord also sent after the 12, He sent the 70? Let's look at this, Luke 10. This is kind of similar to what I mentioned in Matthew, but this is Luke 10. In fact, in Luke 9, I want to say it was earlier in Luke 9. Yeah, Luke 9 at the beginning, he sends out the 12. In Luke 10, he sends out the 70. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face to every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages." Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Now, they weren't supported by money per se, but they were supported in their basic needs. Shelter, food, drink, that sort of thing. Okay. So, what do we do now with all of that? Paul himself was a recipient of such support. Remember the Philippians sent him that stuff, that financial support. And so he ends in verse 14 with this phrase, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now I'm going to close with this. So hang on. Uh, Give me two more minutes here, maybe three. Paul's point, finally, in our section this morning is verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 
If others partake of this right over you, are we not even more? Last question of the section. And we stop right there. So we actually only go to 12a. Next time we have to pick up at 12b. What is Paul saying now in 11 and 12? He is saying that I have given you something of extremely high value. Spiritual truth, the good news of salvation, the gospel, the coming king and the announcement of that king. That being the case, he reasons then, it is not a big deal. If I've given you those very valuable things, it's not a big deal if I receive from you some material things. Pause to consider for a moment this application. Spiritual things are of far higher value than material things. What can a man give in return for his soul? There is no price that you can put on your soul. Without somebody to come and teach you the infinitely valuable spiritual truth of the Gospel of Christ, you would be spending an infinitely costly eternity in hell apart from God for your sin. Or Luke 12. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's far better to savingly know God. Jesus said that it's not bread that man lives by, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Word of God is the real basic element needed for life. In John 4.34, after the encounter with the woman at the well, the disciples asked Him to eat. And He said, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me. Romans 14.17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and joy and faith in the Holy Spirit. Our priority should be God's righteousness and kingdom and the material needs will follow. Matthew 6.33 Seek first. You know the passage, right? The kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Our treasure and our heart should be in heaven, not on earth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be as well. Bodily exercise is of some profit, but godliness has a profit that extends far beyond that. Mark 10 tells us that anyone who leaves behind worldly possessions to serve Christ will receive far greater in the future, a hundredfold in this life, along with persecutions, unfortunately, and then in the life to come, great blessing. There was a man Jesus told us about. I've cited the verse here and somewhere in this long paragraph who had a great abundance of possessions and he said, where am I going to store all this stuff? You know, Today, what do we do? We, we, we rent a storage container, a storage facility and we store stuff there that we never use. It doesn't make sense to me. For him, he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger and God said to him that very night, your soul is going to be required of you and then whose will all these things be? What value can you put upon a man's soul? Spiritual things are far higher in value than material things. In fact, Romans 15 talks about Paul taking an offering from Europe and taking it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he says, look, the people in Jerusalem have dispersed the Gospel worldwide. 
they have a problem now. If they've given you spiritual things, you are obligated to share with them a small portion of material things to help them. And so I, I, I kind of commend that to you this morning as a thought process. Spiritual things are of extremely higher value than material or physical things. You can lose everything. You know, you, you might return to your home today and it's burnt to the ground, but you have your soul. And you know that it is well with your soul. You could have physical illness. You could lose your job. You could have no income. And if you died on the street tonight, if you're a Christian, you're in heaven. And the material possessions don't mean anything. We're trying to do what Paul was doing. He was delivering highly valuable spiritual truth to the people. We're trying to do the same thing here in our church. Give something of spiritual value. We teach spiritual truth from God's Word in every service. We freely give our Bible notes, publish them on the website for anybody to use. I, I've had a number of people who have told me over the years that you know they've been helped by what's there. And I say, look, use it. Take it, improve it, modify it, put it in, you know, use it for your sermon preparation as a commentary or, or modify the, the notes and preach for them. I don't care. We want to give people spiritual truth. Because it's so valuable. It's like, why would you charge for that? What would you charge? What's the price of understanding the Word of God? You can't. It's so, va- it's so valuable, there's no monetary price that can be put to it. We offer Bible counsel to those who ask for it. We live stream the services. Anybody can look at them, listen to the recordings online. Because spiritual things are of far higher value than material things. And I'm grateful that your folks' support financially allows us to do this. Um, it's like, I mean, it's like uh, a Midas touch almost. You turn paper money into the souls of people who will be in heaven forever. What a trade. I'll take that trade any day. I mean, what an investment. You can't get that on the stock market. Not even close. So, we commend that to you. Paul is an apostle. He has certain rights, but as we'll find out next time, he restrains those rights. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've spent a good long while in this passage this morning, and I pray that it's been helpful and uh, causing our thinking to be aligned with your thinking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.